All right, all right, all right. Well, I apologize for being a, a minute or two late here. I was talking with a Sunday school teacher, but we will go ahead and dive in. Let me pray for us as my computer boots up. We'll get into it. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we um, feel the privilege of being able to gather together this morning. We feel the weight of the commission that you've given us as Christians to bear the names of Christ to the edges of the earth. We pray that um, as we do so, we would do so with boldness and humility characterized by lives that are full of the Spirit. And we pray toward that end as we look at uh, these different denominations in this series that we can see the ways in which you have worked and the ways of Mitch in which men have regrettably in some cases worked against you in that plan, uh, but that you would give us humility to even see our own blind spots, understand the tradition. Everyone was raised in a, some kind of tradition, um, and no one has it all right. And so as we continue to think about these things, we pray that you'd give us grace in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we are continuing on here in our denominations series, and today we are going to begin to walk through Roman Catholic theology. So last time we were together, of course, the last time we were here, uh, uh, we didn't have a Sunday school class because we had a congregational meeting, but the last time we were actually doing this class, we finished up a discussion about the conceptual problems of identifying and even analyzing denominations and kind of what counted. And I gave you a very, very brief history that some some people would be probably ashamed of who are history nerds of the Catholic Church. And the five-sentence version is you have this one large stream with a lot of aquatic life in it, we'll say, okay, swimming together. And the only two categories in church history for a very long time were people who are in the stream and people who are on the bank. And they were heretics, okay? You were in the water, even to, regardless of what species you were, you were in the water or you were out of the water. That was it. Okay, and, and there were some uh, practical things that happened. I think I'm over five sentences now, but this is just how this goes, you know. There are some practical steps the early church took to safeguard the gospel, and one of those things was uh, Episcopal leadership. So there was kind of overseers in different regions, and five emerged, five, the five patriarchs, the Pentarchy emerged. So you had the Bishop of Rome, Antioch, Jerusalem, Alexandria, and Constantinople. Now, in 1054, and, and technically, like officially, but it even happened. It happened practically before that. The Roman bishop wanted to add the filioque clause to the Nicene Creed, that the Spirit proceeded both from the Father and the Son, and he said that he could do so because he was the supreme pontiff, that he had ultimate authority over all of the other bishops. And what do you think those bishops said? Uh, no, you don't. And so four out of the five bishops that is, all of the ones except Rome, broke off in 1054 the Great Schism, and they formed what is now called the Orthodox Church, or the Eastern Orthodox Church. You've heard the Greek Orthodox Church, and there's a variety of other variety, uh, uh, variety of variations that we'll talk about uh, later. But that is essentially the story. A couple hundred years would go along, there would be some interesting developments in Roman Catholic theology, but then you would have the Reformation. You have the Protestant Reformation, which then forced a counter-reformation where Rome would officially and dogmatically define its, its dogmas and its doctrines in the Council of what? Trent. Okay, that is exactly right. And so that is where we get 
this, this ex, uh, the Council of Trent met over a period. Some people think it was like a, you know, a weekender or something. That was not it. That's not how it works. Met over multiple sessions, uh, and they hammered out doctrine for the Catholic Church. Okay? And so, and, and now we have a Catholic catechism now. It was released in 1992, translated in English in 1994. Uh, so there, there are now more, there are official documents. We've had Vatican I in what, 1870, we had Vatican II. So there have been more of these ecumenical councils of the Roman Catholic Church to further define dogma, as we'll see. And that is essentially what I'm calling the very brief history of the Roman Catholic Church. That was closer to five minutes and five sentences, but it's worth hearing it if you weren't here last time. So having said that, what I want to do is begin walking through uh, what Roman Catholics believe about these things, and this is the framework that we said that we would work through. The truth is, if we were trying to be exhaustive, we'd be here all morning, okay? Because there's a ton of stuff to, to talk about in terms of Roman Catholicism. You've got Catholic social teaching. You've got all the doctrines of Mary. You've got the Mary, you know, Mary is not going to fit cleanly in any of these doctrines. Some people are going to be like, why? I just wanted to talk about the assumption of Mary. Um, we'll, we'll mention that, but that's not going to be what we're going to focus on, because this is really the core. These are the core when we look at a denomination. And we're starting off with what a denomination, and again, we're using capital D here for denomination. In that sense, there's only three, Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant, uppercase D. Lowercase D denominations uh, are generally reserved for Protestant churches, although, as we'll see, the different, the different groups within Catholicism would be different denominations within Protestantism, but they're governed by a theology that doesn't allow that. Here's what I want to do, though, and I'm highly indebted, by the way, I'll bring the book later. Do I have it? I don't. I'm highly indebted to Greg Allison here. Uh, his It's a 450-page book. It's not for the faint of heart, but it is fantastic, and it's easily, it's very accessible. It's like super easy to read. It's not a technical book at all. He marches through the whole Ro the, the Roman Catholic, the Catechism of the Catholic Church. It's an evangelical assessment of it. And he introduced me to something about Roman Catholic theology that I didn't know. He said that generally Roman Catholic theology is presented and then critiqued as a bunch of these individual doctrines, you know, that are not necessarily related to one another. But he says that actually that is mistaken, and he relies on this brother, this evangelical former Catholic, as I understand it, Leonardo de Chirico, who's, who is head of the Evangelical Alliance in Italy, and maybe it's actually in Rome. And what he says is there's actually two fundamental tenets that kind of undergird the whole system. So it's not this disparate set of beliefs where they say this about Mary, and they say this about justification, and they say this about this. That there's actually kind of two foundational things that make the whole system fit together. And when you see it, you won't be able to unsee it. Okay, so let me just let me introduce briefly what these are. The first is the grace-nature interdependence that you see throughout Roman Catholic theology. What is, what is this? Well, first of all, nature is understood as the totality of everything that God has made, that he has created both in heaven and on earth. Grace is understood as the providential work of God, both to sustain creation and to direct it to its divinely intended end. Okay? Now, the two are interdependent in their thought because, so defined, nature requires grace. Nature requires grace to sustain it 
and to bring it towards its, its uh, intended end. And that uh, grace is always expressed in nature. There is no such thing as just like abstract grace or some kind of concept, that it always takes concrete form. Uh, so nature is always a channel or receptacle of grace. It's always open to that. And grace is always expressed in concrete form. And, and so uh, what you have here is this interdependence of nature and grace. Let me give you an example. So take water. That's part of nature, right? Well, on the Roman Catholic system, water is capable of receiving a special kind of grace. It turns into holy water. And then that holy water, having been graced, can then do what to somebody else? It can impart grace to them. See how that works? Very simple example, but it's exactly what I'm talking about here. And so, by the way, that is, and that is what happens in the Catholic sacrament of baptism. You have water that is blessed. It receives grace as an object of nature. And then you are baptized with it, and that infuses grace into the uh, communicant and it washes away all of their original sin, and it makes them a just person before God in the Catholic sacrament of baptism. Okay? So that's the nature-grace dependence. Now, interdependence, excuse me. Now, one of the huge implications here is that it changes how Rome understands the garden and the fall. Because... They believe that grace was operative. This is this sometimes called the super, uh, the donum super additum. This is that grace was operative, the extra gift, in Adam and Eve before the fall. That's what was keeping their desires in check so they wouldn't fall. Now, Adam made this conscious choice to flout that, and, and, and you know, he had free will and all the rest, so the story goes. But remember, nature requires grace. Grace was not something introduced after the fall to fix a problem. That is not the Catholic view. That is not the Catholic view. Okay, Grace is expressed concretely in nature, and nature requires grace. So that when sin entered the world, it created a disruption, yes. It created a, 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 it created a need for grace to be administered in a different way. But it wasn't some kind of cosmic upheaval like you and I would think. Grace was already there, and grace was there after, and grace will always be there. But you might think that grace would need to be mediated in a second, in a kind of different way, instead of just kind of being there with nature, which leads to the second underlying tenet of the whole system, and it's the Christ-Church interconnection. And you're going to see how these two tenets are related this tenet says that between both nature and grace, there's got to be some kind of mediating agent to present grace to nature and nature to grace. And so you can use the water, uh, the water who blesses the, the, the person being baptized as a great example again. But, but primarily, the foundational mediator ends up being Jesus, who, who graces human nature, physical body. He heightens it. Fully God, fully man. It's an orthodox Christology. They have an orthodox understanding of Christ, but it fits right into their paradigm. So you have this man, but he's not a mere man. He's, this, this man has been uh, elevated in some sense, perfected. This is a perfect man. And then Christ is then able to do what to other people? Dispense that grace. He is able to be the mediator between God and man. And so what 
what, uh, what, what the Catholic Church says here is that God has not left himself, uh, excuse me, well, himself or the church without that kind of expression. In fact, he has called the church the body of Christ. The body of Christ. And so much so, I mean, the theology is very, very literal here when you read Augustine, whose theology ended up winning out on this particular issue. Taking, He said there was no way to understand Ephesians 5 non-literally. So he said you could really talk about three natures of Christ, the human nature, the divine nature, and then the ecclesial nature, the church. He thought, no, the church, the concrete expression of the, the church is an extension of the incarnation. And that is exactly what Rome believes. Rome believes that they are the extension, the Catholic church, head and body, are an extension of the incarnation. That is why they stand to mediate grace, and that is why we find phrases like, outside of the church, there is no salvation. Because for them, that is the same thing as saying, outside of Christ, there is no salvation. You see? And so they are the one who has the ability to stand between nature and grace and apply it. Now, these two pillars are going to do an incredible amount of heavy lifting in the Catholic system, and you're going to see how these two pillars kind of make everything fit together. You can see how it works now. We see about baptism, oh, we understand a little bit about why that kind of works that way. Justification and infusion of grace is going to be the same thing. On and on and on. Um, what I want to do is march through these all of these denominations, just presenting the views before I criticize any of it, to just give it a fair shake. I don't want to be stopping every single time and saying, and this is why I think this, and this is why I think this. I want to give everything a fair presentation. But, but, but just very briefly, let me just say that the, this understanding of nature and grace, this greater, 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 when you say things like greater, you got to take a sip. The gears need lubrication here. The, the grace, nature, interdependence, um, that is, they understand nature according to philosophical categories. Okay? Particularly as Aristotle saw it, saw it, and particularly in the thought of Augustine, they don't define nature according to how the Scripture defined it. And similarly, with grace, that grace is this thing, like this substance that gets infused, like this invisible divine something that gets shot into things and that there is this kind of relationship between nature and grace and they exist, they coexist in this interdependent way is not something that you ever see in scripture. Like there, there isn't a, a scriptural text for that. It is a, it is a, it is a philosophical understanding of what nature is and therefore how grace interacts with it. The second of these two, that the, that the church is the living incarnation uh, as it were, the, extend, the extension of the incarnation of Christ, as, again, from, aside from having what I would suggest is no biblical support at all either, maybe, maybe a tiny bit more because you have the body of Christ language. I think that's misunderstood. But uh, it struggles mightily to really put a place, uh, to, put, to have a place for why, it was so, why the Scripture makes it so clear that it is necessary for Jesus to leave and go away so that someone else could come who is who? The Holy Spirit. The Catholic paradigm, the Holy Spirit, just fits awkwardly. 
It just fits awkwardly. The whole point is that Jesus, his body, is not here. We, we just, we're going to see it again today in the passage. Christ has ascended. He has been exalted. And the fact that he is not here on earth is very important. Because as long as he was here on earth, boots on the ground, the spirit would not come. And so it is true that he left himself a witness and he left himself a divine presence. But that is in the Holy Spirit, as we see in the scripture, not as the church who stands as the institution that mediates grace in some kind of, in, in a way that is like the way Jesus mediates grace. And I'm not saying that there aren't qualified ways in which you could say a church mediates grace. I mean, church preaches the gospel. Okay? Church performs baptisms. The Lord's Supper. These are means of grace, but that's not what a Catholic means by it. They don't. The Catholic Church, just like Christ is the one mediator between God and man, that's what the church sees himself. We're not, no one here singularly or collectively is a mediator between God and man. That's not what anyone in Protestantism says. So those are two foundational tenets that underlie the whole system and kind of make it stick together. And as we go through the particular doctrines, with potentially the exception of the first, depending on how you understand it, you're going to see these pop up over and over again, and it's going to make sense. Instead of being a bunch of random things that you find your proof text to figure out what's wrong, you're going to see, oh, this just kind of flows out of these two things. Okay, having said that then, let's, con let's march through our list with the first tenet being, what does the Roman Catholic Church believe about authority and tradition? Traditionally conceived, no pun intended, the Roman Catholic Church has held that there are two sources of inspired, authoritative revelation, and that the church is the custodian of both. Those two traditions are scripture, uh, those two sources, excuse me, are scripture and the tradition, capital T, tradition. And critically, on this understanding, not all of what's necessary to live rightly before God is in Scripture. It's not there. The Bible just doesn't have it all. You know what it has to be? You know what has the rest of it? Tradition. And so you have Scripture that has to be wed to tradition in order to have the full counsel of God. Some things were written down by the apostles, yes, but others were only passed on verbally and passed on verbally and passed on verbally and so on and so forth. They would cite passages like 2 Thessalonians 2.15 where Paul tells the church at Thessalonica, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions you were taught by us, either by spoken word or by our letter. They also defend this commitment by citing multiple examples from the church fathers where they mention tradition and holding to it and the authority of tradition. And, they, and that is present in the church fathers. Thus, what they maintain is that scripture and tradition are parallel, equal authorities containing distinct material, both of which are necessary to know the full counsel of God, and both of which the church is the custodian over. Okay? Now, more recently, and as far as I can tell, <laughs> this is much more recently. I don't know any ancient attestation, really, 
to this in a way that was widely agreed upon in Rome. I've looked and looked and looked. It seems more like, and, and for certainly Rome has never defined this term right here, material sufficiency. It seems to be something used more by contemporary Roman Catholic apologists. Again, the church has never defined the doctrine. But, but here it is. Uh, it says this, Scripture contains all the necessary material to live rightly before God, but it isn't discernible without the authoritative interpretation of the church. That's what they'll say. They'll say, you know, actually all the stuff that you need to live rightly before God, the material stuff, it's in there. It is in there. So this would be a rejection of the dual source view where it says it's not all in there. So it's split up between two. This says, no, it's not all in there. But then it says, but here's the problem. Scripture isn't clear. This is denying the clarity of Scripture that came out of the Protestant Reformation. And so in so doing, Catholics deny what is called formal sufficiency, that the stuff is all there and it can be actually be discerned. Let me give you an example. Protestants oftentimes ask questions like, well, where in the Bible do we see something like uh, that, so anything suggesting that, that the church would establish a practice of praying to Mary so that she could intercede before Jesus on our behalf. It's like, where on earth is that? And the Catholic, does anyone know the Catholic response or one of them? Example? Oh, not to you. Oh, yeah. So there is a, but there certainly is Catholics who point to Scripture for this one. Yeah. Does anyone know what they point to? The reason you don't know what they point to is because when you read it, you would never think in a million years it had anything to do with, with this doctrine. But that's because the Catholic Church says it's because you can't understand it. That's why there are so many Protestant denominations. No one can ever agree on anything. Here's the example they cite. They cite John 2. They cite John chapter 2, where Jesus kicks off his ministry with a party. He and the fellows go down to a wedding, and you have this master of the feast who has run out of wine. Horrible social embarrassment. And what happens? What does Mary do? Mary goes to Jesus on behalf of this guy, and he petitions for Jesus to save the day, okay? And uh, in one sense, that's exactly what Jesus does. And so there it is right there. Now you say, well, hold on, wait a second. According to like good hermeneutics, and then right after you say things like good hermeneutics, your, your, your voice quickly fades off into the night and the person says, whoa, of course you wouldn't get that. Of course you wouldn't get that. Okay, but the, but the church does. The church can see that there, what you can't see. Okay, we need, yes. Why do they think that? Why do they think the church can? Why do they think the church can? Because the church is the extension of Jesus Christ on earth. It is, the, it is the living extension of the incarnation. So the church is the authoritative interpreter of Scripture because it, in, it itself, they have a sacramental view of the church itself. And the, the, the church itself is one that uh, is, is uh, the ecclesial body of Christ. And so they stand to mediate grace and they stand to be the custodian of tradition. Um, it is the church that is the pillar and foundation of the truth, they would say, Paul says. And so uh, that, is why, that is why they're able to have that ability, and you and I aren't. And this is where the Protestants are going to push back in the 16th century hard and say, whoa, 
We can understand the Scripture by ordinary means. We don't have to appeal to some supernatural, supernaturally inspired magisterium or pope or anything like that. Okay? So, so I would say we are the No, they would say, well, they have different levels of it. They have a head and a body model of the church, but they would say, they would actually call Protestant churches ecclesial communities instead of churches uh, because they don't have the Eucharist. They don't have the Blessed Sacrament. So, okay, but the average member in the Catholic Church, is are they the church? Yeah, or, yeah. No, so yeah, so it's not, they're not saying an individual church member can go home and figure out all these things. That's not what they're saying. They're saying that the church is so constituted as to be corporately the custodian of the tradition and the, and the interpreter. And different people play different roles in that, just like different people would play, you know, elders and deacons play different roles in our particular church. They would say, well, listen, some people's, the, the, the role of the tradition is a historical role. It doesn't fall to any one person. It doesn't even fall to any one pope. It falls to the whole church as a living tradition as things have been played out, okay? So what about this authority? And this is what, and it's a good segue here because Ben just asked, what about the authority? There are kind of three Three, three levels of authority, three brands of authority in the Catholic Church. The first is the ordinary magisterium, and this is what I just made reference to. It's what the church's bishops and their teaching roles have taught throughout church history. And so if this is what has been agreed upon by everyone, everywhere, takes the force of authoritative, infallible tradition. The second kind is the extraordinary magisterium. The extraordinary magisterium is... These, uh, this teaching and doctrine that results from certain special gatherings of bishops. This would be like the Council of Trent. This would be Vatican I. This would be Vatican II. This would be the ecumenical councils. This would be when the teaching bishops all get together and they are all trying to define um, faith and dogma and doctrine for the Catholic Church worldwide. It's a special kind of meeting. Uh, very much unlike just simply what bishops throughout church history and everyone has taught and everyone has believed. Okay? Sometimes, again, this is called the extraordinary magisterium. This is the first part, first kind, the conciliar. The second, though, is this. It's the pontifical magisterium, and that is the pope, having consulted with the cardinals, speaks ex cathedra, or from the chair. Okay? They believe that the pope as we'll talk about a little bit later, is the apostolic successor to Peter. It is Peter upon which the church is built. It is Peter who has the keys of the kingdom, Matthew chapter 16, according to their understanding. And there has been succession in the providence of God since Peter and the Pope essentially represents Peter. Now, papal in, when, he, when the Pope speaks from the chair, he is guarded by the Holy Spirit and is infallible. That is not to say he is an infallible person or that he doesn't even have believe false things as a private theologian, but that when he speaks for the church on matters of faith and doctrine, he is infallible. doesn't mean he's omniscient either. just means he is guarded from error when he is speaking on faith and practice um, as the vicar of Christ on earth. Okay, the representative of Christ on earth. Now, papal infallibility was only introduced in, uh, as a formal doctrine in uh, Vatican I in 1870. 
And so the only time there's actually ever been an ex-cathedra pronouncement, does anyone know what it was? The only ex-cathedra announcement was in 1950, and it was uh, Pope Pius Twelfth, and it was the Assumption of Mary. So if you're not familiar with the Assumption of Mary, Mary, because of their great, the grace, nature, independence, something had to happen so that she didn't have the same problems as everyone else. So she was immaculately conceived. Okay, the Immaculate Conception is a doctrine that refers to Mary's conception, not to Jesus' conception. So Mary, preserved from the stain of any kind of original sin, lives sinlessly, okay? And then, well, how, if I've lived sinlessly and I don't have the effects of original sin, how can my body die? Ah, we have a solution, says the Catholic Church. She didn't. She was assumed body and soul up into heaven, where she exists currently with a body. So she is, in, she, she, she is the only embodied person outside of Jesus in heaven. And all the other souls under the altar in Revelation are disembodied, waiting for a body. Okay, you're asking, well, where is that? Where on earth do we see that? Well, in the book of Revelation, remember the dragons attacking the woman, and the woman is taken up to heaven? There it is. You just can't see it, because... Fill in the line. Okay. All three are believed to be equally affallible and authoritative, being preserved by the Holy Spirit for the task of teaching on matters of faith and practice for the church. Um, let me ask you a question. Why do you think that this doctrine right here is the most fundamental difference, disagreement between Protestants and Catholics? And to, to a certain extent, uh, Orthodox as well. But why this? More so than justification, more so than Mary, more so than any of it. Why is this the more fundamental, the most fundamental difference? Authority and how it overlaps with tradition, yeah, because they're kind of wound together. Okay. And so the so there so how does Rome's why is Rome's understanding of tradition and interpretive authority the foundational difference then between, if you're going to start arguing with a Catholic, why is that the most foundational difference? Yeah. Yeah. So can you, they say other things in there. Can you elaborate on that? Okay. And they do that because they have, they believe they have the authority to do so. Right? And so, yes. Okay, yeah, I think, yeah, I think all that is tied together right, right there. Yeah, so you're, you're, I like the way Stephen said it there. You're playing two different games with two different referees. When, when someone gets to say, who says so, and you have two different answers, then all of a sudden, unless you get to the bottom of who gets the right answer to who says so, you will be two ships passing in the night. Because if you grant the premises of the Catholic Church, of course their doctrines follow, right? If the Catholic Church is in fact uh, the incarnation of Jesus Christ on earth and the Pope is infallible and, and all these magisteriums have given infallible rulings and all these things are true, then what they're saying is true. 
about the ins- but the problem is the only reason you get there is by denying the sufficiency and clarity of scripture and putting authority in the wrong place in my judgment okay and it's not to say that the church doesn't have authority i think the church has been given the keys of the kingdom matthew chapter 18 but it but if 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 you can if you go talk with a uh, 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 if you if you talk with a so you go to a you talk to Father Brown down the road, and you're starting to talk about Catholic theology. Listen, if you can always just say, "Well, here's my proof text. You can't understand it, but the Catholic Church has said it, and they're infallible." It's kind of just like, "Huh? Well, game over." You point out all these problem texts. Well, what about this text? Well, what about the Holy Spirit? Look, it says everyone has been affected by the fall. Did you not read Romans chapter 5? Yes, but I know it seems, but I know you and I might not get it on our own, but the church has told us that so-and-so. You're playing two different games. A, 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 a Catholic who steps onto the scriptures and, and onto the platform of scripture and starts trying to play hermeneutics with a lot of their doctrines they know that's not going to be a winning strategy. That's why when you talk to Catholics, they all want to about church history, and they want to talk about Catholic pronouncements, and they want to talk about the obscurity of Scripture and all the thousand Protestant denominations, because if Scripture was clear, there wouldn't be thousands of Protestant denominations, and there would be a unified view on baptism and the Lord's Supper and fill in all the rest. Therefore, the Scripture is obscure. Therefore, we need the church to interpret it. That's what we have. You just think that you can figure it out by yourself, and it doesn't work. That's how, that's how the conversations go. Okay, so what I'm suggesting is that the, the, the question about clarity and authority and sufficiency and where the, what, what's, what is sufficient for Christian tradition is going to be the foundational difference. Uh, and when I, when I come back, I'm going to work through the, the rest of Catholicism here, but when I, when I critique Catholicism, I put the Abrams tank and I fire right at the bottom of the tree. All right, this is where all the firepower goes right here. Because practically speaking, it doesn't matter if you have a million things to say about Mary and purgatory and all the rest. If the church has the authority to interpret the Bible and we can't understand it, the game's over. You see that? So that's where I'm going to kind of come back in machine gun to switch my military you know, incendiary device there. Uh, but, but I'm not going to do it yet. Okay, of course, the Protestant Reformation would counter with sola scriptura, sola scriptura, which in its original context included clarity that scripture has all the information and we can understand the 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 uh, we can understand what God, how God wants us to live before him and what is necessary for salvation and life before God by use of the ordinary means. Okay, that doesn't mean you can't use Greek lexicons. doesn't mean that you can't have scholars. It doesn't mean any of that. It means ordinary means as opposed to extraordinary means and appealing to the Pope and appealing to, to infallible inspired interpretation and things like that. Well, um, but before we, let, let's continue our analysis here in the second tier and let's talk briefly about how the church is structured in the last nine minutes together. Um, and let me just see if I want to make this point right here or not. Yeah, yeah, I'll just say, we're not going to talk about... Three or four people have asked me about monks and nuns. Apparently, there's like a lot of fascination about like monks and nuns. We're actually going to not... Monks and nuns do not receive holy orders, okay? They take the three evangelical councils that we'll talk about, chastity, poverty, and obedience. 
but they don't actually receive holy orders. And so they are not going to figure into this kind of government and structure. So this is a top-down. This is a mono-episcopacy. Mono-episcopacy. The top is the Pope, the Supreme Pontiff, the, victor of, the Vicar of Christ on earth, the successor of Peter. Again, Catholics will point primarily to Matthew chapter 16 uh, and say that Jesus told Peter very clearly that it was him, you, Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. The gates of hell won't prevail against it and all the rest. And so this is the top dog. He is infallible, again, when, when speaking ex cathedra from the chair. After the Pope, you have bishops. Bishops have authority over particular dioceses. Over, this is, think of the, this is just like a regional pastor. Okay? So someone has authority. You're, you have a, a bishop has authority over the priests in their, in their region. Okay? And then within bishops, you have two categories of bishops. But they're really still just bishops. People get confused about it because it is confusing, in my opinion. But you have cardinals, but cardinals are bishops. They're still bishops, all right? They're just the senior-most bishops that are given a lifetime appointment by the pope, and they're tasked with aiding the pope in council and helping govern the worldwide church and electing new popes. Okay, so this is kind of like the Supreme, uh, Supreme Court appointment Catholic version, right? You are a bishop, it is a high honor, you are taken from just presiding over your diocese, and you are elected to the, uh, the, the, the uh, College of Cardinals to particularly assist the Pope in essentially running the worldwide church. This is like upper level management here, and, and, electing, a new, and electing a new Pope, Okay. The other kind of bishop is an archbishop. There is no difference between a bishop and an archbishop, except an archbishop is a bishop in a more important city, in a more prestigious city. And so when you've heard of an arch, the archdiocese of New York City, that's why it's an archdiocese. You know, There's no archdiocese of, of Tuscaloosa, Alabama, regrettably. It is a great city. But there is, uh, th there is no archdiocese there. But both of these are bishops. So you have popes, then you have bishops, and then under your bishops you have your priests. You have your priests. You have two kinds of priests in the Catholic system. One is the diocesan priests. These are basically your local church pastors who work in the diocese presided over by the regional bishop. Local church pastor, priest, there it is. They take holy orders, and they are also going to have promises of chastity and obedience to the bishop and daily prayer of the liturgy of the hour. So they are going to be committed to celibacy, to singleness, submission to the bishop, and then praying the divine office. This is a set of prayers. This is a set of readings required. And, the, and if any Catholic, anyone can really pray through them. Uh, but but at certain, depending how strict you are as a Catholic, and uh, there are certain hours of the day for each one. And some of you have heard of Vespers, because that happens here at Jekka, and Vespers is taken from the Liturgy of the Hours. It's the evening, evening prayer, okay? And I, and I can't remember all the names, Martins, you have, I can't remember each one. But the, but the, but the point is, the priest 
in addition to celebrating the mass and, do, and visiting the sick and doing all kind of pastoral kind of things, they are responsible for praying the liturgy of the hours. And if you've ever seen um, a big old black book that a priest is carrying around, it's a breviary that has the liturgy of the hours in it. Okay, so because they've got to get it in. They've got to get them in each day. That is part of, by canon law, that is part of what they sign up for as a priest. Uh, chastity, obedience, and daily prayer, the liturgy of the hours. The second are religious priests. They take a different vows. They, they take vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. These are the ones who I said do not receive holy orders. Holy orders allow you then to do something like perform uh, the mass. But this is not, this, unlike what sometimes the first kind of priest is called a secular priest because they work in the world, the religious priests kind of work separated from the world. And these are sometimes... These are your. Um, these would be your Jesuits. These would be your Franciscans. These would be your. Uh, these certain groups of folks who kind of exist. I mean, I'm not saying they don't have a house that's in a neighborhood with unbelievers, but they more or less do their life away from the secular world. Nuns take the three vows, three same evangelical councils here, but uh, they aren't priests. Okay, they aren't considered priests. There's no. There's no more. No female priesthood. Of course, there's. There are people who uh, think that female priesthood is just fine, which you might think is an odd thing, give it the infallible church has already infallibly ruled on it, but that is not why we're here in this exact moment. Under the priests, you have the deacons, and they can assist the priests with mass. This is the church service. Um, both, everyone on, everyone on here, I guess we skipped, everyone here receives their position through the sacrament of holy orders. The sacrament of holy orders where a certain grace will be conferred upon them to do these things. The only exception I mentioned is those religious, the religious priests who are working in a very different context. They aren't celebrating Mass. Okay? At the very bottom, of course, you have the laity. This is, these are your parishioners. These are your average churchgoers. They are Catholics who have not received the, any holy orders, nor have they taken any of the, the three evangelical councils, and they're essentially the folks who show up on Sunday. Okay? So that, from the Pope down to the laity, is the organization of the Catholic Church. All right, I've got one minute left, or maybe two minutes left. Uh, is there? I probably have time for one question, maybe two, about something that we have covered today. Not in terms of, hey, I don't think that's right. That's not. Let's save that question for later. But in terms of like, understanding either the tradition and authority, and their the inner working, the interdependence of grace, nature, the Christ Church connection, or the structure of the church. Any questions about any of that? Yes. Um, we have a question of why do they believe that? You know, what, what, why, what, what puts all of this stuff together? It makes, you know, makes Catholicism worldwide and, and, and overreaching as it is. What is so attractive to this that so many people go to what? And I think that this is very Blindness, because outside of Christ is darkness. 
Mm-hmm. It's blind. Mm-hmm. Now, I believe that this that applies to that. But then when you add to the blindness, you add the ego of men to it, or the ego of mankind mm-hmm. to it. So if a person is stumbling in the dark, they believe that they're in the light, and then they elevate their selves to, to these positions, it, it's completely understandable then. Mm. We can apply that to any group of people that is outside of Christ. It is truly right. outside of Christ. Right. So, so because we can apply that to every group that's outside of Christ, it probably doesn't explain the massive influence of the Catholic Church in particular then, right? I mean, something, their, their historical uh, and... Um, perhaps theological reasons for that. But uh, yeah, Stephen, real quick, and I got we gotta close. I think one of the exact things about it is the constant problem of the young man versus the and all of that. That there's something very attractive to follow tradition of Golden Hill. Yes. But you get the answers in your community that you can then then hear the church Yes, I hundred percent agree that that is one of the sirens calls I'm one minute over, so can, is this a quick one? Okay, okay, yeah. Some good, some good things, some good thoughts. When when we're um, when we can, when I come back to evaluate this, um, we'll talk about some of those things. Some people will talk about the beauty, just the beauty of it. If you've been in a Catholic church, oh, you can just feel God there. And then other people walk in and are like, this feels oppressive. So maybe beauty doesn't necessarily track truth. Well, maybe I'm attracted to the unity, but then why aren't you in orthodoxy then? If you're attracted to the unity of doctrine and the ancient, why, why are you Catholics instead of orthodox? That one's much more difficult to answer. We're going to talk about these things. we got a good start today. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we're thankful for the time to study these things, to think about these things, to learn. Again, we pray that you would give us humility and evaluation, that you would help us think critically and well about these things that we would call one another to repent where we need to do so, and that we would call uh, people to repent of their sin in every denomination where we see that there is um, unholiness reigning or there is falsehood amidst. And so with a spirit of candor, with a spirit of grace, we pray that you would give us boldness. pray that you would bless our next hour of worship in the name of Jesus. Amen.